Blog Talk Radio. Son of a bitch. Welcome to the show, y'all. Welcome to the show. I got a full one for you today. Um, It's going to be a spicy one today. I'm going to be shredding Mansion and Cinema um, and the Democrats in the House who are just legendary corrupt, like next level corrupt. We'll talk about that, how they may be tanking absolutely everything. The shock is that progressives are holding the line to their credit. We'll talk about that. I got Alex Jones spoke to Tim Pool and was way too crazy, even for Tim Pool, who predicts a civil war every other second. Um, I will be discussing the Border Patrol um, whipping Haitian migrants with horse reins. We have... uh, Bill Gates shoves his foot in his mouth when talking about Jeffrey Epstein. We have Tulsi advocating for drone strikes. Biden saying we're not at war anymore. Forget it. I mean, I'm, uh, this, is, uh, this is a good show today. The subject matter for today's show is 10 out of 10. 10 out of 10. So, all right, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into it. Here we go. So it appears like everybody to this point has been assuming, well, we'll probably get something in regards to a $3.5 trillion uh, reconciliation bill. The consensus was, well, we'll get some sort of middle ground um, package anywhere from $1.5 trillion to $2.5 trillion. That's what everybody was casually assuming, everybody who's a political junkie who follows these things closely. Um, but it appears like, honestly, even that, is threatened at the moment. Um, and it's threatened because the corporate Democrats, the right-wing Democrats, look like they may be willing to blow it all up if they don't strip the package of its most popular provisions. So um, now you might be thinking, well, 
Why is that? Do they have some sort of ideological principled position against, for example, uh, universal pre-K or child care or free community college? Well, if you think that, you'd be wrong. Now, every single mainstream media reporter happens to believe that, but for people who follow this uh, seriously, we know that that's nonsense. So now, let me show you some information. We're going to run through it here. I got, uh, I got cinema, and I got uh, the House Democrats who are corrupt, uh, and I'll give you the names of them later. And I also have Manchin here, so let's take a look at the first slide. David Schroeder reports, just in. A pharma bankroll dark money group began airing ads promoting Senator Cinema just before Cinema issued a threat to kill Dems drug pricing bill. Also, Cinema has now vacuumed in $500,000 from donors in the pharma slash health products industry. Threatening to kill it as soon as she's getting money from them and getting support from them. Uh, Dan Price says here, this is from The Guardian, a bill to lower prescription drug prices failed after opposition from three Dems. The three Dems got $1.6 million from drug companies. One is the House's largest recipient of drug donations, and one's ex-chief of staff is a drug company lobbyist. How's that for corruption? Now we have uh, from The Intercept, this is on Joe Manchin. For decades, Manchin has profited from a series of coal companies that he founded during the 1980s. His son, Joe Manchin IV, has since assumed leadership roles in the firms, and the senator says his ownership is held in a blind trust. Yet between the time he joined the Senate and today, Manchin has personally grossed more than $4.5 million from those firms, according to financial disclosures. He also holds stock options in Enter Systems Inc., the larger of the two firms, valued between $1 and $5 million. Those two companies are Enter Systems Inc. and Farmington Resources Inc., the latter of which was created by the rapid merging of two other firms, Manchin's Transcon and Farmington Energy in 2005. Enter Systems purchases low-quality waste coal from mines and resells it to power plants as fuel, while Farmington Resources uh, provides support activities for mining and holds coal reserves in the Fairmont area. Over the decades, whether feeding tens of thousands of tons of dirty waste coal into the power plants in northern West Virginia or subjecting workers to unsafe conditions, Manchin's family uh, Manchin's family coal business has almost entirely avoided public scrutiny. So I want to make this as simple for people as possible. Manchin is making millions of dollars, millions of dollars off of fossil fuels. At the same time, he sits on the committee that's going to decide what we do with energy and climate change in the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. This is such a conflict of interest, you need to come up with a new term to describe how bad this conflict of interest is. He directly profits, directly profits from dirty energy and fossil fuels. So do you think this guy is really going to make the decisions that would negatively impact his own companies? but also happen to move us in the correct direction when it comes to climate change and when it comes to pollution. There's no way he's going to do that. There's no way. He's going to be taking hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars out of his own pocket, and he's going to take it away from his family. Obviously, he's not going to do it. Now, 
Um, let me tell you a little bit more about the um, the three Democrats in the House, because again, three Democrats alone got $1.6 million from drug companies. One is the House's largest recipient of drug donations, and one's ex-chief of staff is a drug company lobbyist. They're so cozy with industry, and they're the ones who are saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to vote for a bill that has a reduction of drug prices. Now, we have the highest drug prices in the world, by far. And this is an issue that 80% of Americans agree with, to lower drug prices, of course. And they're saying, no, I won't do it. So the names, Kurt Schrader of Oregon, Scott Peters of California, and Kathleen Rice of New York. These are the representatives of Big Pharma in the House of Representatives. They're the worst of the worst. Now, just to put this in perspective for you, how bad it is, how much progress they're blocking. Uh, The Congressional Budget Office said the drug pricing legislation, which, by the way, is named after Representative Elijah Cummings of Maryland, it would save the government $456 billion, and it would reduce drug prices by, get this, I hope you're sitting down, 57% to 75% relative to current prices. So in other words, there are many people who would no longer have to ration their medicine. We no longer have senior citizens who have to cut their pills in half if we got this through in the $3.5 trillion package. These Democrats are saying, no, I I will not vote for a bill that cuts drug prices. In fact, I don't want to cut drug prices at all. And then you saw, when it comes to uh, Kirsten Sinema, she is taking half a million dollars from donors in Big Pharma as she's telling Joe Biden, I'm against lowering drug prices. Cinema had the nerve, and she did this with a $15 minimum wage, too. There are times, you can go back and pull up the tweets. There are times she casually tweeted about, I'm lowering drug prices for Arizonans. Or I'm in favor of higher wages. She kills the $15 minimum wage. She's against that. And she kills uh, a reduction in drug prices. So here's the thing. I'm, I'm struggling to get my mind around this. I really am. My default assumption when dealing with other human beings, and maybe I'm too naive, maybe I'm too nice, maybe my view of human nature is a little bit too positive, but I generally assume the best. So in other words, I take people at face value. I take you at your word. If you say you believe X, I think you believe X. That's generally my position. Now, if there's overwhelming evidence in the contrary position, then okay, I'll change my mind, and I will judge you, and I will judge your motivations, and I will judge your intentions, But it's very rare that I have to go to the level of I'm questioning your intentions and your motivations. Usually I take people at face value. I think they're generally honest about what their positions are on stuff and why they do the things they do. I cannot for the life of me think that they don't know that they're comic book villains right now. Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, the three Democrats in the House, uh, Kurt Schrader, Scott Peters, Kathleen Rice, they're willing to blow up the entire bill if we don't strip the best provisions out of the bill. Another article, by the way, said uh, they're against universal pre-K and free college as well, that the so-called moderate Democrats, we'll get to that later, they shouldn't be called moderate Democrats, they're saying, well, we have to get that out because that's the only way you'll get my support, is if you get that out. So in other words, they take like the best provisions of the bill that pull the highest and like, we got to get rid of that, we got to get rid of that. I don't know how you can take, in the case of Manchin, you have millions of dollars because of 
the fossil fuel companies, the dirty energy companies. I don't know how you can look at that conflict of interest, personally profit from it, and not realize you're a comic book villain. Because everybody knows how bad climate change is now. It's right in front of our eyes. It's the most obvious it's ever been. Things are terrible. We have to address it. And this is our only chance at addressing it seriously. Democrats are probably going to get wiped out in the midterms. Who knows the next time that we're going to have Democrats control House, Senate, and presidency. So this is, our, this is our last attempt for, what, at least a decade? And things are going, you know, marching in the wrong direction very quickly now. So our last shot at it, and he's willing to blow it up to personally continue to profit. How do you look at yourself in the mirror? How do you put your head down on your pillow at night and you're fine? You can just go to sleep like you're doing nothing wrong. Kirsten Cinema, how do you take half a million dollars from Big Pharma and say, I'm against cutting drug prices, and, and look at yourself in the mirror and say, oh, I'm doing the right thing? In other words, I don't think they can even lie to themselves about their actions here. I don't think they can say, well, I'm the moderate, I'm the centrist, I'm the reasonable one. I have a principled stance against 80% of Americans who want to lower drug prices. By the way, there's a poll that just came out specifically from Arizona. 80% of Kirsten Sinema's constituents say, of course, lower drug prices right now. She looks at them and says, no, I don't want to do that. And don't look at the fact that the reason I don't want to do that is because I'm, to use their language, vacuuming up money from big pharma. These are abhorrent, corrupt goons. And I can't help but conclude they know that they're corrupt. They know what they're doing. They have to know what they're doing. Is it worth it? Is it worth it at the end of the day? When these people are 70 years old or 80 years old and they're retired and they're sitting in their rocking chairs, are they going to be comfortable with themselves? Yes, I tanked our last chance at um, actually doing proper governance to avert the worst effects of climate change. But, hey, I got paid, son. Yes, I, I made sure that drug prices were 50% to 75% higher than they should have to be. Probably Americans die as a result of our drugs costing too much, but you know what? It's fine, because I took money from Big Pharma. So I got paid. I'm happy. I'm good, son. Listen, you should absolutely have to get the money out of politics. We can't, we're always going to run into this problem. You're going to have, by the way, the majority of the Democrats are correct on this. The majority of them are like, yes, let's vote for this bill and let's um, make sure it has those good provisions in it. So listen, I'm fair. I'm objective. I'll tell you the truth. Most of them are doing the right thing. It's just a handful of them who are going to blow the whole fucking thing up. And by the way, in the Senate, it's like seven or eight of them who really agree with Manchin and Cinema and they want to strip out all the positive provisions. But we're always going to run into this problem. We're going to run into this problem even when Democrats have a supermajority there's going to be a handful who are totally bought and owned by corporations. And now, let's talk about the fucking media. Now, I'm telling you the truth about all this. I'm telling you the reality about all this. Print does a decent job, to be fair. When you look at CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, the nightly news, none of them are telling you the reality. In fact, what they're saying is a bunch of moderate centrist senators and Congress people are uh, currently negotiating the $3.5 trillion bill because they don't like certain provisions. Moderate centrists? If they're against 80% of the American people, that's not moderate. That's not centrist. That's extremist. They're extremists. They're corporatists. They put the will of corporations above that of their own constituents, above that of the American people. It's the clearest example of corruption I've ever seen. If a story like this 
came out of the former Soviet Union, U.S. papers would rip it to shreds. They would say, this is, this is disgusting, this is kleptocracy, this is oligarchy, this is corporatocracy, this is insane. This, you're not looking out for the will of your own people? Are you grotesque? Are you disgusting? What an abdication of your duty and your responsibility. But when it's our centers, the moderates, the moderates, the centrists, they're not moderates. You know who's a moderate? Every single person who's in favor of cutting drug prices. Every single person who's in favor of having good climate change provisions in this bill. They're the moderates. They're the centrists because they're right smack dab in the middle of mainstream public opinion. And every single poll that's come out on this $3.5 trillion bill, the provisions are wildly popular. Now, why is nobody in the media framing it the right way? Why is nobody calling a spade a spade? Hugo, you can count the number of people in mainstream media who are calling Mansion Cinema and these three Democrats in the House corrupt on one hand. In fact, probably none of them are calling them corrupt. Why? Are you that cucked by the church of decorum that you can't tell the truth, that you can't call a spade a spade? And the answer is yes. And they're also not that bright, which is why they're hired to be in these positions in the first place. Wolf Blitzer's not going to rock the boat. Wolf Blitzer's not going to tell the truth. He's put there because he's bland. So they're going to tank the entire goddamn thing because they want higher drug prices for you. And again, the media is not calling that extremist. The media is not telling you they're not on your side. They're going to tank the entire thing because they want to strip out the provisions for climate change. I said it before, I'll say it again. Abhorrent, corrupt goons. I generally give people the benefit of the doubt. I generally don't question intentions and motivations. I'm questioning your intentions and your motivations. Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, Kurt Schrader, Scott Peters, Kathleen Rice. I'm questioning it. And you know what? I'm right. And you know I'm right. You know you're doing this for the money. You know why you're doing it. You know that you want to get that pharma money. You want to get that dirty fossil fuel money. You want to, by the way, another big part of this nobody really talks about, what happens when they retire from Congress? Where do they go? Oftentimes they get rewarded and they cash in, son. Barack Obama bailed out Wall Street. No strings attached. They were paying bonuses to the same assholes who bankrupted their companies and tanked the global economy. And then you know what happened? As soon as Obama got out, the first time he was in the news, giving a $400,000 speech to Wall Street. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I'll kill lower drug prices for the American people if you give me or my shitty family member a job for 500000 a year or a couple million a year after I'm gonzo. This is how they think. They are corrupt. They are greedy. They are corrupt. They are disgusting. And they're tanking the whole thing. They're tanking the whole thing. Most of the Democrats are doing the right thing on this. And you got just a few who might tank the entire goddamn thing. I don't know what else to say except to give the same advice I've been given for months on this show. Joe Manchin, or excuse me, Joe Biden, you better make all of them heal. Oh, Kyle, how can he do that? These people, oh, they can make their own minds up. And what do you think? He's a magician. And it's very simple. Carrot or stick approach. Act like a mafia boss. You call him in your office and you say, listen, I'll be your best friend or I'll be your worst enemy. Do you want a position in my administration? Do you want one of your staffers or one of your family members to have a position in my administration? Do you want another military base in West Virginia, Joe Manchin? Do you want more money specifically for infrastructure for your state, Kirsten Cinema? Whatever. Call them in, say, well, make sure you're fully funded for your reelection campaign. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes, I will look out for you if you vote for this bill. 
if you don't vote for this bill, your career's done, son. And Joe Manchin, oh, would you look at that? Looks like your family's in some legal trouble. Looks like your daughter is part of the EpiPen scandal where we have her caught dead to rights saying, let's come up with a, a rationalization in order to jack up and price gouge on EpiPens. Illegally colluding with Pfizer. We have the emails. Now, maybe Merrick Garland and my DOJ is going to come after you. And maybe your family's going to go to jail. Unless, of course, you vote for this bill. Then we can work something out. You, got, you have dirt on all of them. Use it. You have leverage. Use it. If you're not going to do it, I don't want to hear about a fucking legacy. I don't, there is no legacy. LBJ and FDR are turning over in their graves if you don't use this approach. Characteristic approach. I'll be your best friend or I'll be your worst enemy. Give them all the reason in the world to support the bill. And if they don't, okay. End them. End them. Because the fact of the matter is, these are the worst of the worst. You guys heard me say before, I honestly believe that corruption should be treated just as seriously uh, as the worst crimes. Rape, murder, assault. Um, fact of the matter is, just based on what I've seen so far, mansion, cinema, these Democrats and more, they should be in prison for life, for life, for tanking our only last shot at real positive change in this country. Our only last shot. Now, by the way, um, let me pull this up as I'm speaking to you guys right now because I want to give you all the provisions, and they're all super important. Um, this is what might go down the drain, ladies and gentlemen. This is what might go down the drain if these assholes get their way. All because they, they're personally greedy and corrupt. Child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family and medical leave, tuition-free community college, lower prescription drug prices, dental, hearing, and vision in a Medicare expansion, housing, home care, major climate money, immigration, a lower Medicare age, Obamacare expansion, um, and, of course, on the revenue side of this, higher taxes on the rich, higher taxes on corporations, fees on polluters, negotiating, uh, Medicare negotiates. We're going to lose all this because Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin are corrupt and they want to get paid. If they don't do your bidding, you declare war on them. And if you don't, then that's on you. Okay. Here we go. Next. You got to give credit where credit is due. Fair is fair. And um, we're learning now that progressives are not backing down in this fight over the infrastructure bill and the reconciliation bill. The entire time it's been a two-track process. Hey, you want the traditional infrastructure bill to pass? Fine. It goes hand in hand with the human infrastructure bill. Now, again, what's in the human infrastructure bill? Child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family and medical leave, tuition-free community college, lower prescription drug costs, dental, hearing, and vision in a Medicare expansion, housing, home care, major climate money, immigration, lower Medicare age, Obamacare expansion. There's a lot. There's a lot of things that I would argue are even more important than the infrastructure bill, which because the infrastructure bill on its own is watered down. This is the real deal holy field in terms of good, very, very good social safety net policies, social democratic reforms. So it's been very clear from day one. We're, it's a two-track process. We're going to pass two bills or we're going to pass none of the bills. 
Well, now uh, the so-called moderates, really they're corporate extremists, um, they're threatening to tank the whole thing because they're not budging. They want to strip out some of the most popular provisions. They want to strip out universal pre-K. They want to strip out free college. Um, they want to make sure we don't lower prescription drug prices because they're that button owned by big pharma. So now you have Pelosi meeting with the progressives for about an hour and a half the other day, probably trying to press them like, listen, we might have to wiggle and we might need some wiggle room because we got, the, they're saying the thing and they might not bend and what are we going to do? They never bend. So uh, Pramila Jayapal, the head of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, will the left fold or will they hold the line? How many members are there of the House Democratic Progressive Caucus? There are 96 members and over half are, uh, are absolutely committed to uh, making sure we deliver both bills at the same time. So 48 Democrats will vote against the House infrastructure bill if it does not come with the budget uh, reconciliation package, is that more right? Than half, more than half of our members will vote uh, for both bills. And this was the deal, Jake, that came out of the Senate when they passed, when progressive senators passed the bipartisan bill in the Senate. It was on the specific understanding right. and commitment that both bills would move together. And so now we want to make sure that both bills are moving together, and we're going to hold to that commitment. And so, yes, half our members, uh, more than half our members, will not move the bipartisan bill without the reconciliation bill being passed. Boom. There you go. There you go. Um, that's better than we could have imagined. That Because, listen, the Congressional Progressive Caucus is fake. They're not all congressional progressive. Uh, congressional progressives. Some of them are um, part of the like centrist, centrist third way caucus or whatever new Democrat coalition, and part of the congressional progressive caucus, which is a contradiction in terms. It makes no sense. So the the overall numbers fake anyway. But to have more than half of the congressional progressive caucus say no, we're not budging. These two bills go together, or go fuck yourself. That's all we ever wanted. It's all we ever needed because this is the way that you get a seat at the table and this is the way you can actually win some negotiations. So what's going to happen from here? I don't know because Manchin and Cinema and the Senate, probably seven or eight others, including Warner, um, and a number of corporate extremists in the House, they are truly committed to greed and personal profit and raising campaign money from big pharma and from the fossil fuel industry. And so maybe the whole thing does get tanked. Maybe the whole thing does fail. But you know what? If that's the case, so be it. Because you have to let them know we're serious. You have to let them know we're willing to shoot the hostage. We're not going to get rolled anymore. Because what are progressives known for other than getting rolled? All they do is get rolled. So you're going to make them bend to your will. You're not bending to their will. So listen, ultimately... Um, it's very possible it all goes down in flames. So be it. We fight because it's absolutely necessary for the future of this country to fight. It's absolutely necessary for the people of this country that they get their will in what's supposed to be a constitutional republic and a representative democracy. When every provision polls massively popular, you can't just let the corporate extremists pull out all those provisions. And what you're left with is a hollow shell of what used to be a decent bill. 
So good, stand there and fight. Now, I will say, ultimately, reconciliation is reconciliation. So you have to reconcile that now we're in the process where you reconcile. Okay, how do we get final provisions out of this? So they're going to start chipping away and make some changes. Of course, it's got to go through the committees and come out of the committees. And you guys know I've been saying all along, you'll know it's a good bill. Now, this is subjective. This is my opinion. But I think I'm in the ballpark of that, which is reasonable um, for this entire conversation. If the bill is $2 trillion or more and you keep in a lot of the good provisions and you still have some climate stuff, that's a deal I will take. As soon as you drop under that $2 trillion number, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. So I would vote for a bill that's $2 trillion or more on the human infrastructure side plus the original bipartisan infrastructure deal. I vote for them together. If, if it gets under $2 trillion for the reconciliation bill, the human infrastructure bill, don't talk to me. I'm done. I'll vote it down. That's what I'll do. So we'll see what happens, but it's good that progressives are flexing on this. Now, my guess is if you get a number that's $2 trillion or more, the more than half of the Congressional Progressive Caucus will say, okay, that we could vote for, and then you might have the votes. But it's also very popular, or very possible, excuse me, at this late date, that we get nothing. But you know what? The only way you have a seat at the table is to play hardball from time to time, is to be willing to shoot the hostage, because then they're going to listen to you. Then the next time there's a negotiation, they're going to have to give more because you're driving a hard bargain. This is, this is politics 101. This is negotiation 101. You know, if, if you're going to buy a car, a used car, let's say, and the sticker price is 15 grand, you got to come in at like 10. And then that makes it so that when they respond to you, they're going to try to meet you halfway between the 15 that's on the sticker and the 10 that you just asked for. You don't go in saying, yeah, I'll pay full sticker price. You have to rep your side in the negotiation, and that's what they're doing. Now, I don't know if them saying $3.5 trillion or bust, I don't know if, if them saying that. My guess is it's the negotiation position, which is the correct thing to do. I don't know how many of them truly say, like, no, there's actually zero wiggle room for any negotiation at all. You know what I mean? So, because if that's the case, then I would say they're even being a, a little too unreasonable and harsh because the whole process of reconciliation is that it is going to be negotiated further uh, from when you start the process, from when it goes through the committees. So I, I don't know. There's a chance that even if you craft the deal as $2.5 trillion, the progressives will say, no, we want $3.5 trillion. And in that case, then I would all of a sudden be seemingly to the right of the House progressives. But as of right now, as of right now, credit where credit is due. This is the exact right position. This is the exact right message to be sending. And Joe Biden better get to work. Because we got way more lefties who are willing to tank this thing than right-wingers, than, than right-wing corporate Democrats. So that means Joe Biden needs to get to work trying to convince the right-wing Democrats, the corporate extremists. And uh, like I said, carrot or stick approach, make them a deal they can't refuse. And if you don't, then you know what? It's on you. But, and I like the way Jayapal is framing this, too. She's been saying all along, in every interview that she's done, she says, uh, we are in favor of passing both bills as per the original plan. So we agreed to the plan. We have the negotiation already. This is what it is. So they are the ones who are holding the bill hostage. They are the ones who are breaking their word. We're the reasonable ones. We're just saying, hey, we're for both bills together. 
as per the original plan. So in other words, she's refusing to say, like, we're against anything. That's a great negotiation tactic and a great way to, to frame the discussion, to put the onus back on the corporate extremists, and that's exactly what they are, by the way. Okay. Next. So Alex Jones went on Tim Pool's podcast, and um, I didn't watch all of it. I watched some of it. And suffice to say, Alex Jones is far too crazy for Tim Pool. Take a look at this. What I'm getting at is the globalists are obsessed with that, and so they're not into interstellar travel so much as they're into inter interdimensional travel. And that's what the Aztecs and the Babylonians, all of them are into. But the only type of entities that will communicate with us are lower level, because higher level ones will interfere in a developing sub-civilization. And so kind of like the space crash comes in, and it's more like a gremlin. It just wants to see us kill kids and drink blood and do horrible things, because that thrills them interdimensionally. So that's why these creatures always ask for blood, always ask for children. Then they'll give you a little bit of knowledge they have about what they've seen and done. I, I'm not saying I've seen that. I'm saying I believe that. I I've never taken DMT. I'm not doing that. The globalists are doing that, and, 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 and they, thank you so much for inviting me. I think well, the, upper, the higher dimensional ones are communicating with us, but our brains as radio receivers aren't tuned to the right frequency to hear it. <laughs> Except so we're operating in a lower animal brain, and that tunes well, into the, the, to the demon channel. Okay, the same thing. Okay, wait, wait. wait. <laughs> so, he, although he can tune the channels, he's right, and, and the one we tuned to was like, When you say globalist, there are powerful international interests who believe weird stuff. Yes, there are a lot of powerful rich people that want to have immortality and want to explore and want to know the secrets of the universe. So they paid trillions, they put like trillions out since the 1850s to Sir Francis Galton and others to, to, to break through, break on through to the other side. Right. Break on through to the other side. They're having groups of people take this, having the same experience going into these dimensions, talking to these aliens. They believe they're aliens. But that they're they're sneaky, they lie, they're basically demons. Mm -hmm. They're like clockwork elves. So I, I'm sitting in the back of the car, hearing my mom drive along with somebody who's, you know, I mean, they're talking in front of them, I'm six, seven, eight, nine years old, repeatedly. And, they, and they, so these are research scientists in San Francisco in a university study, you know, at the Psychedelic Research Institute or whatever it's called, I'm, I'm going back from memory, and then it's actually people on uh, different hallucinogenic drifts long-term going in, like mapping everything, and then coming out of it, writing it all down, what they saw, and then going back, trying to communicate the things always say, we want you to kill children. Like that's where you lose me, right? It's like the weirdest oh, thing. No, I mean, it's a, like it, it starts off with this amazing, fantastic journey of like uh, you know through the, through the back in the water. Well, back of, you go through the back of the. Imagine this. Why do you think Joseph Mengele did it? Why do you think? Okay, hold on, hold on. Like, let me, let me, let me. What do you think these people are into? A story about several children. Sauron doesn't oh, want gold. He wants children's blood. <laughs> Sorry, a bunch of children are playing hide and seek in their in their family home as their parents are out about working. When young, one of the young children goes to the, open the wardrobe to go and hide, but behind the back of the wardrobe there is no wall. Narnia. And they stumble. Hold on. They stumble into this amazing winter wonderland where a giant lion rides up and says, "Bring me the blood of children." <laughs> See, that's where you lose me. Well, there was the blood of a lion in that in that story, but I know, I know, I know. It's like. You start off with this fantastic journey. It's like it's like they want to meet the interdimensional. Listen, you ask for the proof. Every culture builds pyramids and starts cutting children's hearts out. What? <laughs> what? Now, by the way, uh, Tim Pool goes on to say, every culture 
And then Alex Jones is like, well, almost every culture. Uh, I mean, listen, Tim Pool is not my cup of tea, but at least in this back and forth, got to give him credit because he's trying, man. He's trying. He's like, all right, hold on. So you're, I like when he tries to kitchen table it all and simplify it at the beginning. He's like, all right, so you're saying that there's a bunch of globalists, uh, you know, powerful people internationally who are into some weird stuff. Yeah, Tim, that's one way of uh, describing and summing up what he said, but let me be a little more specific. He says that you have globalists who are into interstellar travel, but they can't really do interstellar travel, so they do interdimensional travel, and the way that they do that is they take DMT, but their brains get tuned into the demon channel when they do it. And then they see gremlins who want to see us kill kids, and they ask for blood. I mean, there's so many assumptions to, to you know, unpack here, but even the idea that uh, Alex Jones is convinced that when you take a drug, you go to another dimension. When you take a hallucinogenic or psychedelic drug, you go to another dimension. We don't know that for sure at all. I mean, I guess it's possible, but it's also possible that in the same way when you go to sleep, you have a dream, and the dream feels incredibly real. Like, you have no idea that you're dreaming when you're dreaming over 90% of the time, right? Well, maybe it's the same thing when you take a hallucinogenic or psychedelic drug, that, you know, you feel like something is real, but it's not real. It's just in your mind. So even the original assumption of, like, we're going somewhere to another dimension, and these entities are real, even that's a little disconnected from reality. And that, you know, the fact that he's so convinced it might be a symptom of some issue that he has, whether it's bipolar disorder, whether it's schizophrenia or something of that nature. I mean, he seems really, really convinced about stuff he has no idea about. And, uh, like, so why isn't there evidence of globalists uh, eating children and stuff? There's no evidence of that. I, got, I have a million issues with the people who really run the world. You know, I put the blame squarely at their feet for most things. But they're not eating kids. And when you say that, you actually undermine the case against them because you're so hyperbolic and you're so over the top that you make people feel sympathetic to these greedy idiots who run everything. They're eating kids. I mean, I guess he, he might argue, if I'm being overly kind to him, which I shouldn't be, but I will be for a second, maybe he would say, oh, the killing kids part is, um, is like abortion. But, you know, it's, uh, it, I'm sure the numbers are overwhelming that the people getting abortions are more middle class and lower class people because there are just more middle class and lower class people than people in the top 1%. It is literally like 1% or fewer, probably a fraction of the top 1%. So what are you talking about? That's what I'm saying. Even Tim Pool, and by the way, Tim Pool is very well known for repeatedly predicting a civil war is coming. So it, it's not like this guy is the height of rationality and logic, but even he's like, what? Like, you lost me. Slow down. Tim Pool's a guy who predicted Donald Trump would win in a landslide victory. I think one time he may have even said over 400 electoral votes. This guy is even like, I don't get, you lost me. You said the globalists are into some weird stuff, but now all of a sudden we get they're going to kill kids, they're going to sacrifice kids, they're going to eat kids or something, and they want the blood of kids, and, you know, this is a giant problem. Listen, I, I thought about it a lot, and I realized what my biggest issue with Alex Jones is. And this is really important. This is the, if you take away anything from this segment, this should be it. Alex Jones takes anti-establishment energy 
because he has a big audience. He has a lot of followers, even though he's been censured in 14 different ways. And by the way, I'm against that censorship because that was just the beginning. There was a slippery slope, but now everybody and their mother is getting censured. We should have never opened that door in the first place. But anyway, I digress. Alex Jones takes very real anti-establishment sentiment among his audience, and he wastes it. He completely wastes it. Because what he does is he makes people take all of their energy and go down these rabbit holes, and there's zero productivity in that. So in other words, if you take, and I'm guilty of this to myself in the past, like I dabbled in the 9-11 conspiracy stuff, but then one day I realized, like, well, hold on now. What's the end game here? Like, what, what, are, what am I thinking about this and looking at this stuff all the time for? What's the best that I could have happen? Well, they always said, just open up a new investigation. So they're going to open up a new investigation, the same people who theoretically were involved in the plot and conspiracy to take down the towers in the first place, they're going to investigate it, and they're going to then tell you the truth and blow the whistle on themselves and people in their own social class. Well, that doesn't make any sense, because obviously the same people who, who think it's a big conspiracy, if the new investigation and report doesn't, uh, you know, validate their priors, they're going to say, well, this is also part of the conspiracy. So what am I doing here? I'm taking anti-establishment energy, and I'm squandering it. I'm squandering it on nihilism and going down paths that are totally fruitless. You see, I want people to take their anti-establishment energy and do something with it. Why do we hate the establishment? Well, the answer is very simple. The establishment has been screwing us for decades. Drug prices are too high. Wages are too low. We got endless wars going on. Our infrastructure is falling apart. We have a government that doesn't represent us. They represent corporations and billionaires. That's the establishment. So if you have this anti-establishment feeling and fervor, you should harness it towards positive ends. How so? You get involved. Go join a union to get people higher wages. You know, Go do direct issue advocacy and try to get legalized marijuana or $15 minimum wage on the ballot in a state that has direct ballot initiatives. Go join the DSA or go join whatever. If you're anti-establishment and you're libertarian leading, go join the Libertarian Party. But do some shit, right? Do something positive. Take the energy and use it. Use it for a protest movement. Use it for direct issue advocacy. Use it to join a party. Use it to run for office. Alex Jones takes all of this anti-establishment energy, which is real and is legitimate and matters and is good, and he redirects it towards people thinking about globalists being vampires and harvesting kids and wanting to kill kids and wanting their blood, and there's no evidence for any of this stuff. And the idea that, like, what, everybody who's a globalist or a billionaire or whatever, like, don't get me wrong, do I think there are, like, pedo sex rings among the elite? Well, absolutely, we have proof for that, Jeffrey Epstein. Do I think that everybody in the elite takes DMT and thinks they're communicating with another dimension and they're doing interdimensional travel and they're talking to little gremlin people? No! No! You went too far! Just like Tim Pool said. You might start with a kernel of truth, but then you're out in la-la land. You know? By the same token, listen, of course Alex Jones was correct that, you know, he was saying the NSA was spying on everybody before... Uh, anybody realized it? That's just one example of many things uh, that he's gotten right over the years. But it's you take a kernel of truth and then you extrapolate it way beyond what a logical conclusion would be. And, you know, that's my biggest issue with him. He takes this anti-establishment energy and then gets people to squander it and waste it in, in fruitless ways where, you know, nothing good comes of it. You have to take that anti-establishment energy and use it for good. 
use it for good. And don't even get me started on the whole, like, she's so anti-establishment that he wound up backing Donald Trump, who was nothing but a servant to the establishment. Donald J. Trump governed like George W. Bush. And Alex Jones was a huge critic of George W. Bush, but he wasn't a huge critic of Trump. Trump kept us in Syria. Trump kept us in Iraq. Trump kept us, despite what he says, we were still in Afghanistan when he left. He had four years to get us out. He didn't get us out of there. He didn't get us out of there. Trump's biggest legislative accomplishment was a tax cut where 83% of the benefits of it went to the top 1%, the elites, the globalists that Alex Jones postures against. So that's another way in which not only is he wasting anti-establishment energy, he's redirecting it back into the establishment. So maybe he is the conspiracy. Oh, man. Alex Jones, we got a globalist gremlin rant about interdimensional travel and gremlins want to see kids killed and the blood of the kids and I'll try my best, Alex. Now, I'm not a fan. I've never actually done hallucinogenic or psychedelic drugs. Um, I don't think it's my cup of tea. It might be. I don't know. But I, I, I more prefer uppers and downers. Tweaking my mood is fine, going up or down. But seeing Scooby-Doo when he's not there is not necessarily my thing. But uh, if I ever do take a psychedelic drug like that, I'll try my best not to tune into, using his words, the demon channel as I do it. So... There's also plenty of people who aren't globalist elites who do hallucinogenic drugs. And by the way, plenty of people have positive experience. He makes it seem like there's only one experience and it's always a bad trip. No, there's plenty of people who do these psychedelic drugs and they have positive experiences and they don't see gremlins and demons. I don't know, man. The dude needs help. Far too crazy, even for Tim Pool. All right, next. All right, so here we go. We got uh, more of the crisis at the border. You can call it a migrant crisis. You can call it a refugee crisis. I've seen arguments over the semantics in terms of what words to use. Um, Now, this is a – you're about to see the video. It's actually a short news clip, but – Here you have a Border Patrol agent. They're sort of threatening migrants when they're on horseback. Uh, People are saying, oh, they're whipping the Haitian migrants. Now, a bunch of pedantic losers are like, that's not a whip. Okay, it's a horse rein, but they're using it as a whip. So don't think you're, well, actually people into a corner here because you just look like a jackass if you're, well, literally and factually, and then what the thing is is, if they're using it to whip, then it doesn't really matter if you call it a whip or horse reins or whatever, right? Well, they would say no, but they'd be wrong. Anyway, um, here are Border Patrol agents really treating these uh, migrants and refugees terribly. Let's take a look at this news report, and then I'll come back and break it down further. The White House condemned U.S. Border Patrol agents on Monday who were seen using a whip-like cord to block Haitian migrants carrying supplies into the U.S. from Mexico. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said she had seen some of the footage, calling it unacceptable. We just saw this footage. Um, It's horrible to watch. Um, I I just have to get more information on it. I can't imagine what the scenario is where that would be appropriate. I'm certainly not suggesting that, but we've just seen the footage earlier this morning. 
Reuters drone footage captured hundreds of mostly Haitian migrants crossing back and forth between Ciudad Acuna in Mexico and the sprawling camp across the border in Del Rio, Texas, to buy food and water that was short in supply on the U.S. side. Reuters witnesses saw mounted officers in cowboy hats blocking the paths of migrants, and the apparent use of horse reins swung to threaten the migrants. At the White House, Saki was pressed over whether disciplinary action would be taken. Is it the president's stance or, or the White House's stance that whoever these border agents are using would seem to be whipped on migrants, that they, that they would be fired or at least never be able to do that again? Uh, of course they should never be able to do it again. I don't know what the circumstances would be. It's obviously horrific, the footage. U.S. Border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz said the incident was being investigated to make sure that there was not an unacceptable response by law enforcement. While visiting Del Rio on Monday, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said the long reins are used by mounted officials to, quote, ensure control of the horse, but also vowed to investigate the facts. The camp under a bridge spanning the Rio Grande has become the latest flashpoint for U.S. authorities seeking to stem a flow of migrants fleeing gang violence, extreme poverty, and natural disasters in their home countries. Hundreds of migrants have been turned around on the Mexico side, leaving uncertainty whether they'll be deported on flights organized by U.S. authorities. Mallorca said he expects between one to three daily repatriation flights back to Haiti and stressed in a news conference that if individuals try to enter the U.S. illegally, they will be returned. Wow. So, all right, let's. Let's dive into this. So first to the person whipping and threatening to whip and using the horses in an aggressive manner. There's another video where he says, like, this is why your country's shit because you treat your women like this. Something to that effect. I don't think I have it verbatim, but that's paraphrasing him. Um, Listen, simple answer on that front. Fire whoever that agent is and whoever the agents are who are, like, threatening the migrants with their horses. And the fact of the matter is this. There's no way to talk around this because we know it's true. Those people aren't a threat. They're not threatening them. They're carrying food back from Mexico because there's not enough food here in the U.S., and so they have to go to the other side and get food and then try to come back. So now you might not like the fact that the Haitian migrants are here. This is a huge problem, clearly. But you can't say that they're threatening the Border Patrol agents. They're just not doing that. One of them was carrying food and then dropped it because, you know, the Border Patrol agent was sort of being aggressive towards the migrant while he was in the water holding food. So it's just, it's needless aggression. And the fact of the matter is there's pictures of this guy smiling in a really deranged way where you get the sense, this is the kind of person who was attracted to this job in the first place. There are plenty of people who for all the wrong reasons want to get involved in various kinds of law enforcement. We all know it's true. It's a politically incorrect truth, but it's a truth nonetheless. Now, are there some people who get involved for the right reasons? I'm sure. But this is somebody who's in it for the wrong reasons. He's been waiting for a moment like this, to be able to do something like this, to abuse his authority and his power. So I would just fire those border agents who are doing that. I don't think that one's that difficult. Now, to the rest, there's a lot to say about the rest of it, and we covered a lot of this the other day, but Joe Biden right now is mass deporting them. Now, a lot of people either don't know that or know that but are sort of misleading about it. He's using Title 42, which was put into place under Trump, Basically, the argument is there's a pandemic, so we can sort of skip the whole due process thing, not give people their day in court and their hearing, or we're just going to mass deport a lot of people. 
And like all day, every day, you got these deportation flights happening. Now, there are some who are claiming refugee status who are granted the refugee status. One thing I saw was uh, like pregnant women, for example. So pregnant women and their families, they're, you know, it's being to them, um, the points being made, well, it would be dangerous and you'd effectively be, I guess, having a very uncertain future for a baby who might just about be ready to be born. So they're doing a slightly more humanitarian thing when it comes to women who are pregnant and, and those families, they're getting granted refugee status. But to be honest, there's not, there's really, it's not clear who they're granting the refugee status to and who they're not. So again, most of these people are just being mass deported. And there was a judge who just said, well, you can't really do that. This Title 42 thing is illegitimate. It was illegitimate under Trump. It's illegitimate under Biden. By the way, Biden has already, at this point in Biden's presidency, he's already mass deported more people than Trump had in his four years. Trump, it was like 400,000. Biden, it's like 690,000. So he is doing the mass deportations. He's, some of the, very few are getting to stay here. Um, but listen, is Biden going to get credit for that from the right who they, this is what they prefer. This is their ideal approach. They loved it under Trump. And that's sort of what Biden is mostly doing here. Are any of them going to give him credit? Of course not. Of course, you see Fox News going after Biden 24-7 over this. And of course, to the left, are the Democrats going to really point out that Biden is doing effectively what Trump did and call him out for it? Well, some of the more left flank are doing that, but most of the Democrats are either not saying anything or they would even defend Biden's actions on this front. Um, like I told you guys the other day, the only real answer I have, the only real answer I have is you need to have more immigration judges, have just have more resources dedicated to fixing this problem and having a faster process, a better process, a more streamlined process. Now, I get that's difficult because now you have over 15,000 people uh, and more coming that are under that bridge. So what do you do? Well, the last thing you should do is sit around, and the last thing you should do is just mindlessly mass deport. Uh, and that gets to the final point on this, which is, um, why are they coming here? Listen, they just got smacked with a bunch of natural disasters. Uh, they just had a coup where the president was overthrown, and there's already evidence that we played a role in that coup. So this is the classic U.S. move. It's like, we play a role. Oftentimes, it's the main role. I don't know if you could say it's the main role in Haiti, but oftentimes, we play a role in destabilizing these governments, having these governments in the, the global south overthrown. And then when people come here and try to escape what's going on, which we're largely responsible for, we feign outrage. We're like, whoa, how could you? I mean, the biggest example is uh, how many migrants and refugees do you think we've gotten over the years because of the drug war, because of the cartel violence and the gang violence that's associated with the drug war, that these problems wouldn't exist if we simply legalized, taxed, and regulated drugs. But because we want to be tough on drugs and do the drug war, well, there are consequences to that. One of the consequences is you have narco states in the global south, and you have people living in violence. Oftentimes in Honduras, there was more violence there than in Iraq at the peak of the Iraq war. So, of course, people are going to try to escape from that. Duh. You know, I mean, you also have, honestly, our direct coups of many countries. That's going to lead to people coming here. Our trade policy, uh, you know, where we outsource 
well, good-paying U.S. jobs and put the jobs in Mexico for one, and then uh, people who were making a living with their own small businesses in Mexico were then sort of put out of business and forced to work in worse conditions, and a lot of people flee that because they want better jobs and opportunities, so they come here. There's so many ways in which our policies directly or indirectly impact people in these countries, then they flee to us, and then we're like, well, fuck off, you got to get out of here. You can't do that, man. You absolutely have to change the policies up so as to not create refugees and migrants. Guys, I don't know if you know this, but most people don't really want to leave everything they've ever known. Some do, but the overwhelming majority don't. And so when people end up doing that, it's not some indication that they're coming here to commit crime or whatever. They're looking for a, a chance at a half-decent life. That's the reality. Now, listen, if I'm president, how am I going to approach this? Like I said, you got to devote more resources to it. You've got to have more immigration judges. You've got to streamline the process. Um, but what I would say is you have to look at everything on a case-by-case basis. People on the left are generally going to say, and again, maybe you say this is unfair. I don't know. You have to talk to everybody on the left and all the elected officials to get a sense of it. But I think most on the left would say, hey, they're all refugees. Let them in. Okay. Then you have most people on the right who I think would say, deport them all. They have no right to be here. They would ignore the fact that we've contributed in many ways to destroying the regions, which then leads to the migrant and refugee flows. Um, me, personally, I, I probably wouldn't do either one of those things. Like I told you guys the other day, I would, you have to, so yes, we are a nation of laws, and we have to enforce those laws, uh, but we also should be reasonable and humanitarian and logical and rational in how we handle migrants and refugees. So everybody should get their day in court. Everybody should get their hearing. And then you have to decide on a case-by-case basis who has a reasonable claim to be let in as a refugee and who doesn't. And I don't know what the numbers would be. Would it be 50-50? Would it be 70-30 in the direction of staying? 70-30 in the direction of deportation? I don't know. But um, suffice to say, what's happening now is unacceptable. And uh, we don't have nearly enough resources. We don't have nearly enough immigration judges. And, um, but by the way, this is a, a little peek into our future as well. Because with climate change, there's going to be way more refugees. I mean, the Middle East is literally going to be uninhabitable because it'll be too hot there. What happens then? Well, the Middle East empties out. And where are they going to go? That's just one example. There was a place that just got walloped with two hurricanes recently. A lot of people fled from there. What are we going to do? You know, what do you do? But that's my take on it. And, of course, the crystal point, which I made you guys the other day, I think is a very good point, which is um, everybody's also a hypocrite on this because if these people were from Cuba – the Republicans would say, swing open the doors, let them in. Because nominally, the people who escape Cuba are hate communism, and so they view them, these will be Republican voters, so they want to let them in. And on the Democratic side, uh, people would be screaming bloody murder if this exact same thing was happening under Trump. They would. Um, but since it's under Biden, it's not nearly as much outrage. So everybody's a hypocrite. Um, it's a very difficult situation. There aren't many good answers. I'm just trying to give you guys what I think is the least bad answer. Okay. All right, Jeffrey Epstein, here we go. So Bill Gates um, did an interview with Judy Woodruff, is her name? I think that's her name, although I could be wrong about that. Um, she's on PBS, and man, I don't know why he agreed to do this. He, every time he talks publicly, he really makes a fool of himself. He spent years 
crafting his PR image as like, I'm the good philanthropic billionaire. I'm altruistic and humanitarian. And that all just blew up because it's bullshit. Um, virtually everything this guy does is a scam. He's big on protecting monopolies. He does this whole, like, we're going to send the COVID vaccines around the world. The reason he's doing that is because he's against lifting the patent protections uh, for big pharma. So in other words, you can have every facility that can make the vaccines all around the world make the vaccines, and then way more people would get the vaccines. Bill Gates says, no, we don't allow that. Instead of allowing all the facilities to make the vaccines, um, we want to make sure the profits are protected for just big pharma. So we're going to, we'll send the vaccines around the world. We'll do it through charity. Okay, but you're not going to get nearly as many vaccines as you need if you just do it through charity. You have to lift the patent protections. Bill Gates says no. He decides, I'm the global health minister, effectively, and the developing world, you're not going to get nearly enough vaccines. And I'll pretend like I'm the good guy because I'll do charity vaccines and send millions when really we could create billions if we just lifted the patent protections and reduced the profits for big pharma. Bill Gates says no to that. So he's a terrible person in every imaginable way. Here he is on PBS. He's asked a question about his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Hmm. Let's see how this goes. It was reported at that time uh, that you had a number of meetings with Jeffrey Epstein, who, when you met him 10 years ago, he was convicted of soliciting prostitution from minors. What did you know about him when you were meeting with him, as you've said yourself, uh, in the hopes of raising money? Uh, you know, I had dinners with him. Uh, I regret doing that. He had relationships with uh, people he said, you know, would give to Global Health, which is an uh, interest I have, you know, not nearly enough philanthropy goes in that direction. Uh, you know, those meetings were, were a mistake. They didn't result in uh, what he purported, and I cut them off. You know, that goes back a long time ago now. Uh, there's, you know, so there's nothing new on that. It was reported that you continue to meet with him over several years. Um, and that, in other words, a number of meetings. Um, what did you do when you found out about his background? Well, and, you know, I've said I regretted having those dinners. Uh, and there's nothing, absolutely nothing new on that. Is there a lesson for you, for anyone else looking, looking at this? Well, he's dead. So, uh, you know, in general, you always have to be careful. Uh, and you know the, you know I'm I'm very proud of what we've done in philanthropy. Very proud of the work of the foundation. Uh, you know I, that's that's what I get up every day and focus on. Guilty. Guilty. Oh my God, that was that was uh, tough to watch. That was I've never seen somebody squirming more than that. I've never seen somebody so uncomfortable and so unable to give a direct, straight answer to the question. Uh, probably the most chilling part was, uh, well, he's dead. And in general, you always have to be careful. He's dead, and in general, you always have to be careful. What does that mean? What are you saying? By the way, his overall argument is total nonsense. He says, look, I needed to meet with Epstein effectively to connect with other important people. Who couldn't you reach on your own, Mr. Famous Billionaire? Who would reject a meeting with you 
in those elite circles? Who? The answer is none of them would. It's a total dodge. It's not convincing at all. And then he was asked directly, what did you do when you found out about his background? He basically was like, nothing. I'm very proud of my philanthropy. I didn't ask you about your fucking philanthropy. I didn't ask you about that. I said, what did you do when you found out about his background? What did you do when you found out about Epstein's background? Namely, pedo dude. Runs Billionaire Sex Crimes Incorporated. What did you do? You did nothing. By the way, this was a huge source of tension between Bill Gates and his wife. Bill Gates' wife said to him, I know what this guy is. You know what this guy is. You're meeting with him. That's not okay. What are you doing? What's wrong with you? And he, would kept, he kept meeting with him. And it wasn't just oh, a couple dinners. No, he was buddy-buddy with him. Now, I don't know everything. I'm no genius. But if a billionaire continues to meet with the leader of Billionaire Sex Crimes Incorporated, I wonder what that billionaire is engaged in. Don't tell me there's not some sketchy stuff going on in elite circles, dog. Don't tell me that. Now, unlike Alex Jones, that doesn't mean that there are globalist gremlin people trying to drink the blood of children or whatever. He goes way too far with it. But are there elite circles of billionaires and um, basically the real, true leaders of the world, the people who really run the world, global capital? Are there weird cliques and clubs and groups among those people where they engage in some terrible stuff? Oh, you bet your ass. There absolutely is. I'm sure a lot of them are into some terrible sex stuff, and uh, that's why Epstein was offed. He knew where all the bodies were buried. He knew exactly what all the powerful people were doing because he provided them with the stuff they wanted. So maybe that's what Bill Gates, it's almost like a Freudian flip there. Well, he's dead, so in general you always have to be careful. Careful of what? Spilling the beans on all the billionaires and the wealthy folks who he provided children with? Guilty, son. Guilty. Don't fall for the PR bullshit, because this is what they always do. There's always billionaires who basically buy positive press. And even philanthropy. It's a, it's a giant racket. You know, really, in many instances, it's just a tax avoidance scheme. I set up a foundation to do good work. No, you set up a foundation to launder your image and to get a giant tax break. That's what you did. And Bill Gates is a great example of that. Again, the vaccine thing is clear as day. He's fighting against lifting the patent protections for big pharma. So he doesn't want everybody to be able to make the vaccines. He only wants pharma to profit from it. And at the same time, he's doing charity vaccines, which isn't nearly enough. So it's safe to say that his PR image has been destroyed, and that's a good thing because clearly he did a lot of very fishy stuff. Okay. All right, let me do one more, and then we'll take a break. Tulsi Gabbard was uh, away on active duty doing something or another. I don't know. Uh, she tweeted about it the other day. I don't remember the specifics. I just remember she was, uh, she was very silent because she was doing some military stuff. So, you know, you would think that the person who led 
during the primary on I'm the anti-war candidate, you would think that when Biden actually ends a war, that she would be on the front lines defending that, being the public face of, you know, a defender of Joe Biden for doing the thing that she advocated for for a long time. Well, she wasn't. But she does have the excuse, hey, I was doing some active uh, duty military stuff, so I couldn't really talk about it. I didn't want to put anybody in danger, so on and so forth. Okay, fair enough. Well, um, she was brought on to Tucker's show. Now, Tucker nominally brought her on here because the Biden administration did the revenge-slash-retribution drone strike to go after the ISIS-K operatives and planners who did the airport attack in Kabul. So Tucker brings her on. He probably thinks I'm going to bring her on to do her standard, like, you know, the neocons are bad, the military-industrial complex is bad, we need to end these wars, we need to end them now. If we don't end all the wars, what's going to keep happening is what you just saw. Civilians are going to be killed. My guess is that's why Tucker thought he brought on Tulsi. Well, Tulsi didn't really get the memo, and look at where her commentary goes. Congressman, thanks so much for coming on. So you get to lie, I mean, this will not shock you because you've seen it so much, but you get to lie about the loss of human life, you get caught, and nothing happens to you? What kind of system is that? I mean, this kind of accountability is critical. I, I want to point out first that anytime there are civilian casualties in war, it is tragic and terrible. Yeah. War is a terrible thing, and, and I think it's important for the American people to understand that Islamist jihadists are continuing to wage war against us. And the Islamist ideology, not the same as the religion of Islam, but this Islamist ideology, which is a political ideology that inspired the terrorist attacks on our country on 9-11, uh, is, is the greatest threat that we're facing right now in this country and the world. It is the foundation of governance of so-called Islamic countries like Turkey and Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia and, and Pakistan. Uh, and it's what's behind the discriminatory policies that they have in these countries against Christians, uh, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, and others. So as long as these Islamist jihadists are waging war against us, we have to work to defeat them militarily and ideologically. And militarily, we have two choices in how we do that. Number one, we can continue to invade and occupy and nation-building countries around the world, just as we did in Afghanistan, at great cost. Number two, we can take a targeted approach using airstrikes, using our special forces to go in and go after these terrorist cells. The reality is that the cost, the cost to the American people, the cost to our troops, the cost to civilians will be far less if we take this very targeted approach to go after these jihadist terrorist cells than if we continue making the very same mistakes that we saw in Afghanistan and other parts of the world of invasion, occupation, and nation building. That's what's called a false dichotomy. She sets it up as, well, listen, we could either invade and occupy and nation build, or we could drone strike and do targeted airstrikes. Those aren't the only options, Tulsi. You know those aren't the only options. There's another option, which is don't do the drones or the airstrikes and don't do the invasion and occupation and nation building. You don't have to do any of those things. She sets it up as, well, we've got to do one thing or the other thing. But wait, this is in the context of a story where those so-called targeted strikes 
massacred 10 civilians, including seven children. So it seems like the takeaway would be the opposite of what you're proclaiming. You're saying, well, the answer is obviously the targeted strikes. But the whole point of this story is that those targeted strikes weren't so targeted. We've been propagandized all along, this idea that from 100 miles away, our laser-guided munitions can kill a mosquito. That is utter nonsense. Those are lies. Those are lies. And by the way, so what is her direct answer on that front about the death of the civilians? Because Tucker's throwing her a softball. Oh, I guess you could just lie and get away with it. So they lied and said, we got an ISIS-K operative. Tucker's saying, there's no responsibility for any of this. You're not going to fire the person who did the drone strike. You're not going to go after the military commanders who determined that this was the target. Her answer is, anytime there's war, there are civilian casualties, and it's tragic and terrible. Is that what we'd say if China killed a bunch of our civilians? Anytime there's war, there's civilian casualties. It's tragic and terrible. No, my guess is what we'd say is, that's a war crime. That's a war crime. It's an act of war. They need to be brought up at The Hague. You've got to enforce the Geneva Convention and the Nuremberg Tribunal. Somebody has to go down for this. But when we do it, oh, it's, it's tragic and terrible. No, it's not tragic and terrible. It is a war crime. It is a war crime. The people who made the decision have agency. They should be brought up on charges. You can't just kill 10 civilians, including seven children, and an aid worker and say, that's tragic. No, tragic is like an accident happens. War crime is we just massacred civilians. But in the segment about how we massacred civilians, she pivots right to the Islamist ideology is the problem. The Islamist ideology is the problem. By the way, there's, she also conflates Islamism with jihadism. They are not the same thing at all. So Islamism is just political Islam. Now, Am I against political Islam? Of course, I'm against theocracy across the board. Duh. But Islam, Islamism is not one-to-one with terrorism. Jihadism is the idea that we're going to spread Sharia all around the globe and a strict fundamentalist Sunni interpretation of Sharia at that. That's jihadism. Islamism, there's plenty of Islamist governments that are not doing terrorism. Domestically, they're a menace, and I disagree with how socially conservative they are and all that stuff, of course. But don't, don't conflate the two things, because conflating the two things is the way that you get people not understanding there's a colossal difference between the Taliban and al-Qaeda and ISIS. Al-Qaeda and ISIS are jihadist groups. They want to export terror. Uh, the Taliban is a guerrilla army, and now they functionally are the Afghanistan government. They don't have global ambitions. They have national ambitions. That's got nothing to do with us at all. So I hate the conflation of Islamism with jihadism, because that's sloppy thinking, and that helps justify us doing perpetual and endless war against them. She says we have to defeat them militarily and ideologically. There is going to be no defeating, whether it's Islamism, jihadism, or any of this stuff. You can't just defeat it militarily. That's like saying we have to defeat crime. Isn't there always going to be crime to one extent or another? Of course there is. So we're going to do wage an all-out war and an onslaught and drone strike shit and airstrike shit? No. That's not, that's not realistic. And what you're doing is you're agreeing to the ideological framework of forever war, the exact thing that Tulsi Gabbard positioned herself against. Listen, you, Tucker invited you on to say drone strikes are bad, airstrikes are bad, these are not targeted, and you killed civilians and there needs to be accountability for it. 
she totally swings and misses, complete whiff, and goes right to, well, Islamists and jihadists are bad, and we have to defeat them militarily and ideologically. We could either invade and occupy, or we can drone and airstrike. I'm going to go with drone and airstrike. The definition of false dichotomy. And if you go down that road, you're going to keep having civilian casualties. And unlike Tulsi, I'm not okay with just some civilian casualties. I don't want any. I don't want any. Would there be more if we do boots-on-the-ground invasions? Of course there would be. But I'm supposed to be okay with a smaller number from airstrikes and drone strikes? I'm not. And by the way, we know from Trump, because Trump increased drone strikes 432%, and he got rid of the few remaining rules on drone strikes. When you do airstrikes and drone strikes, if anything, sometimes casualties go up. They go up because 2019 was the most deadly of the years in Afghanistan because all we were doing was drone strikes and airstrikes. So don't give me the false dichotomy. And if you're going to be anti-war, be truly anti-war. Let's end the wars. The only time we should use violence is when there's a direct threat of violence against us. There wasn't in this instance. And guess what? With Obama's civilian death rate with the drones being 90%, my guess is it doesn't matter who the leader is. Every time they're pressing these buttons to blow stuff up on the ground, they're getting the wrong targets 90% of the time. So it's, it's unacceptable. It's totally unacceptable. And, um, you know, it really is something, too, because positioned herself as an anti-war candidate. Granted, she was gone while Biden was ending the war. But now you're back. And your commentary is not very clearly on the side of it's a good thing to end the wars. It's a shame. It's an absolute shame. And um, I don't like when I get the feeling that people are posturing and positioning and calculating. What's my lane? Just tell people the truth. Just tell people what you think. And you know what? Maybe she is. And that's an even worse thing to contemplate. That if this is really what you believed all along, the whole I'm the anti-forever war thing was a farce from the beginning. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, Joe Biden says U.S. wars are over at the U.N. And an Iraq war vet crashes George W. Bush's rehabilitation tour. Stay right there. We'll be right back, guys.
back. I am back. Okay. Um, still got a lot of great stories for you guys. Let's keep it going, y'all. So Joe Biden um, gave a speech at the UN, currently going on in New York, and um, he said something that is absolutely ludicrous, and you want to talk about mixed messages. It doesn't get any more mixed than this. All the unmatched strength, energy, and commitment, will, and resources of our nation are now fully and squarely focused on what's ahead of us, not what was behind. I know this. As we look ahead, we will lead. We will lead on all the greatest challenges of our time, from COVID to climate, peace and security, human dignity and human rights, but we will not go alone. We'll lead together with our allies and partners and in cooperation with all those who believe as we do that this is within our power to meet these challenges, to build a future, to list all of our people. I stand here today for the first time in 20 years with the United States not at war. Return the page. What? I stand here today for the first time in 20 years with the U.S. not at war. Huh? Listen, he got us out of Afghanistan. Credit where credit is due. But we're still in Iraq. We're still in Syria. And don't try to tell me that it's not a war. We're occupying like a third of Syria and jacking their oil. That's war. Being in Iraq. That's war. Uh, We're also doing a shadow war in Africa. That's something that, uh, you know, I talked about years ago. It's still going on. It was reported on by The Intercept, among many others. We have about 900 military bases around the world. Don't tell me that we're not. We're still at war in multiple places. Multiple. Never mind, you know, the drone strikes which we do virtually anywhere we want to do them, of course we're still at war. See, this is the problem. Um, And I I did fear this. I feared that when Biden pulled out of Afghanistan, which, again, it was great. It was wonderful. I'm very happy that he did that. I don't buy any of the media hype and bullshit about the sky's falling because we're leaving. No, the sky was falling while we were there, and you guys didn't have anything to say about it, like how we allied ourselves with warlords who have child sex slaves. Didn't have anything to say about that. But also, when we leave, oh, my God, everything's a problem. Um, but I was afraid that because there was such a harsh media backlash uh, when Biden left Afghanistan, I mean, that really disincentivizes Biden from pulling out of Iraq, from pulling out of Syria, from stopping our uh, illegal drone program, which kills massive numbers of civilians, from stopping the shadow war in Africa. We have uh, troops in Somalia. That's another one. There were some U.S. service members who died in Somalia not that long ago. And everybody's reaction was like, wait, hold, we're in Somalia? What? See, that's the problem. So he does one good thing, and now he's disincentivized because the media is so vicious when he does one good thing from doing other good things. But also, you can't just blame it on the media. It's also on him. Because if you're really brave and you're really committed to doing the right thing as a matter of principle, you'd say, I don't care about the consequences, and you pull out of everywhere else. Else. Now, he stood strong on Afghanistan, which is great, because I could have seen many presidents just totally reversing course 
after that. Uh, so he does deserve credit for that. I don't want to downplay that. But this is just a flat-out lie. And you know it's a lie. Of course Joe Biden knows we're still in Iraq and we're still in Syria, we're still in Somalia, we're in a bunch of different places in Africa waging a shadow war. We're, uh, we're arming and, and funding Saudi Arabia, who's effectively doing a genocide in Yemen. We've helped them. We've bombed for them in Yemen. So that's another one you could add to the list. These are all acts of war. If anybody else was doing these sorts of things, we would call all of the things they're doing war. You know, he didn't get us back in the Iran nuclear agreement. That's something that definitely escalates tensions and brings us closer to war with Iran. And, of course, that's the last thing I'd want. So, I mean, it's just astounding, isn't it? Now, the mixed messages here are that, on the one hand, he's saying, look, we're going to lead from COVID to climate, peace and security, human dignity and human rights. Um, He talks about how we're going to work with the world now. We're all together internationally. And so it's like a very let's all come together, kumbaya type thing. Um, But then on the other hand, he's still doing the wars. And so the U.S. still does many unilateral actions around the world. So it's just, it's definitely mixed messages. Your actions say one thing, um, and your rhetoric says another. Your rhetoric is all, you know, lovey-dovey. We're not isolationist anymore. There was a headline I saw about this piece where somebody said, uh, Biden is rejecting Trump-era isolationism. But here's the thing. There was no such thing as Trump-era isolationism. Quite the opposite. He was continuing the wars as well. In fact, he, he assassinated General Soleimani, which was a colossal um, you know, slap in the face to Iran and massively increased tensions with Iran. Of course, Trump kept us in Iraq. He kept us in Afghanistan regardless of what he says, even though he may have been undermined by the generals in the process because there was reporting he was trying to get us out. Um, there was no Trump-era isolationism. And by the way, isolationism, I hate that term because it's used as a pejorative for non-interventionism. You know, they think like, oh. And they also conflate like trade and working together on climate stuff. They try to conflate war stuff with that stuff. So, because in one sense, it is good to be isolationist or really non-interventionist. It is good to not do offensive wars. That's a positive kind of isolationism or non-interventionism. But it would be a negative thing if you totally shut yourself off from the rest of the world in the sense that you don't do any trade deals with them at all, in the sense that, you know, you don't have an open line of communication with the rest of the world to work together on stuff like climate. So they try to conflate those things on purpose, but... Yeah, that was an astounding lie from Joe Biden. Just astonishing. I can't believe that that line was in there and that he repeated it. That, you know what else that goes to show you? They're just going to keep doing what we're doing forever. Like, we'll just permanently stay in Iraq, permanently stay in Syria, permanently do the shadow war in Africa, because they're just going to pretend like it's not going on as it is going on. Incredibly deceitful. And that's what your money and my money is going towards, by the way. At the same time, we don't have an updated infrastructure. We don't have free healthcare, we don't have free college. It's a real scandal. Okay, next. So Mike Preisner is, um, on top of being Abby Martin's husband, uh, he is an Iraq war veteran. And he 
completely and utterly had an enlightenment moment and really was awakened to the to the lie and the harm and the damage that was done by the Iraq war. And so he's a really committed anti-war activist. So George W. Bush is going around doing his little rehabilitation tour, and he went to L.A. Well, Mike Prisoner, uh, Prisoner, excuse me. I, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it. I think it's Prisoner. He, um, he protested it and interrupted it. And this is a really interesting moment. Take a look and then we'll discuss. without that happening because it is it's not even close it's not a close call it's not up in the air it's not a question george w bush is a war criminal he's a war criminal so is dick cheney so is donald rumsfeld so are all the thought leader neocons who are the architects of the war like bill crystal david frum they're all terrible and um they all really should be in the hague they violated the Geneva Convention. They violated the Nuremberg Tribunal. Um, they implemented a torture regime. There was Abu Ghraib. There was Guantanamo Bay. Shredded the Constitution. Shredded due process. Shredded habeas corpus. Illegally and offensively invaded a country that did not attack us. Saddam Hussein did not work with Osama bin Laden. There was no connection between the two of them. Saddam Hussein was not a threat to the United States of America. They lied relentlessly to get us into that war, tried to connect Saddam Hussein to Osama bin Laden, and then when that fell apart, they just moved the goalpost to, well, he's a really bad dictator. He's a bad dictator 
who was at the height of his atrocities when we were arming him and backing him, when he was massacring the Kurds, when he was doing terrible things. That's when we were backing him. That's when he was our ally. At the very least, now, you know, the estimates vary widely as to how many Iraqi civilians died. At the absolute minimum, it's 200,000 innocent Iraqi civilians who died. At minimum, by 2053, it's six or seven trillion dollars, which will be wasted in the war in Iraq. The military-industrial complex got wealthy. They ran out the back door with all the money. It's greed. There was profiteering. There was shoddy work on the military bases. There were these uh, private contractors. They got no-bid contracts. They were paid a phenomenal amount of money, and then they did shoddy wiring at some of our bases, and some of our troops were electrocuted to death while taking showers. They would sell these six-packs of Coke for, like, 30 bucks, 40 bucks. It was just all profiteering, price-gouging the American taxpayer. So they shook down the American taxpayer. We illegally invaded a country. We massacred civilians. We did torture to cover it up. And now this guy's going around, and he's, not only does he have a high approval rating, or excuse me, I actually don't know if he has a high approval rating among Republicans anymore, but even among Democrats now, he has a, a decent approval rating. When he left office, he had an approval rating in the 20s. It was like 29% or 22% or something crazy like that. There's a reason why that was the case. He's a war criminal. And, by the way, his policies helped crash the economy along with Bill Clinton. Deregulation tax cuts for the rich. Clinton did the deregulation. He didn't do the tax cuts for the rich. Uh, Bush did deregulation and tax cuts for the rich. So uh, credit to Mike there. That was really good. I, need, I want him to have to think about this stuff, face the reality, and I'm, I'll flat out advocate for it. Anywhere, anywhere George W. Bush goes, somebody should be there to say these exact same things, to call him a war criminal, to tell him to apologize, to try to read the names of the civilians who died. He brought up the Nisor Square massacre there and the civilians who died in that. That was carried out by Blackwater, private defense contractor. By the way, had a, like a Christian fundamentalist who was at the top of that organization. Private mercenary army, not beholden to international law. And we went in there, they went in there and they massacred civilians in the middle of a busy public square. Um total war criminal, don't buy the rehabilitation program that's currently going on. It's total nonsense. And I hope more people do what Mike Preisner did here, because he's right. All right, next. This story is absolutely fascinating, and it's going to be buried because other aspects of it were previously buried. So take a look at this. In Mediaite, political reporter confirms emails from Hunter Biden laptop. Politico's Ben Schreckinger said Tuesday that a source corroborated several of Hunter Biden's emails, including one believed uh, to suggest giving his father, President Joe Biden, equity in a Chinese company. Quote, a person who had independent access to Hunter Biden's emails confirmed he did receive a 2015 email from a Ukrainian businessman thanking him for the chance to meet Joe Biden, Politico said, citing Schreckinger's new book released on Tuesday, The Bidens Inside the 
family's 50-year rise to power. The same goes for a 2017 email in which a proposed equity breakdown of a venture with Chinese energy executives includes the line, 10 held by H for the big guy. So, this is interesting for a number of reasons. This is the story that came out when a person who owns or runs a computer repair shop had a laptop of Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden, he didn't come and pick it up. So this guy, I guess he's right wing. He decided, I'm going to turn this over to the Trump campaign. He reached out to Rudy Giuliani and gave Rudy Giuliani Hunter Biden's laptop. So they went through it and they found all these emails and all these other things. Now, the corruption angle, which is what I just read you there, that there were all these backroom deals going on that are corrupt, at the very least unethical, maybe illegal. These stories kind of got drowned out by the salacious stuff, the pictures of Hunter Biden, you know, I don't know if he was naked in them, but some shirtless, smoking a cigarette, sex acts, all sorts of stuff, addiction problem stuff. So all the corruption stuff, which is the substantive stuff, got drowned out by the salacious stuff. But what happened next? This is amazing. This was just a couple weeks before the election. Twitter and Facebook banned the tweeting and sharing of the New York Post article, which detailed all this. What? And they did it under the guise of, this is Russian disinformation. So in other words, their argument was, Russia hacked Hunter or something, and, or, or this is just lies spread by the Russian government to try to get Trump elected in the final two weeks of the election. Their, their main thing they hid behind was Russian disinformation, so we're not going to allow this on Twitter two weeks before the election. And they banned it. Well, guess what? The whole Russian disinformation angle was total bullshit. Total bullshit. By the way, there was a story recently, another, you know, just total destruction of the fable that was Russiagate. Somebody got indicted uh, who was aligned with Hillary for making up some Russiagate stuff. So, of course, of course, of course. I mean, again, there were a few voices on the left who were debunking Russiagate. I'm proud to say I was one of them. Um, But they banned a story that was true, that was accurate. Now, you might say, well, hold on, you know, Rudy Giuliani was involved. This is partisan hackery. Yeah, but political figures talking about political stuff, reporting on political stuff, is called politics. That's what happens. And as long as the information is newsworthy, it should be shared. It should be published. Now, I get it, because I said at the time, there's no news value in the Hunter Biden addiction stuff. There's no news value in the Hunter Biden sex stuff. So if I was making, calling the executive decisions and making, calling the shots at the New York Post or any other outlet, I would have said, don't publish that stuff. You could put a line, uh, you know, there were sexually explicit things and addiction-related things that we saw, but we're not going to show the pictures. I would say that, but the stuff on corruption is absolutely newsworthy. And you absolutely should have transparency about that stuff, because the American people should know about that stuff in the first place. Joe Biden is an elected official. If he's involved in corrupt deals with his son and a Ukrainian energy company or a Chinese company, we need to know that. So, but Twitter banned it. And here's the main point, guys. 
the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, um, they all knew that the Russian disinformation charge was bullshit. And Twitter and Facebook, I don't know if they were duped by it or they knew it was bullshit also, but they unfairly interfered in the election by just totally banning access to stuff they didn't like. Because, I mean, I do think that they preferred Joe Biden win, and so they were sort of protecting him in the final stretch of the election. Now, was it going to be enough to swing the election? I don't think so. I think that's, that's a stretch for sure to make that claim. But either way, people should be against censorship as a matter of principle. Okay, so this is a story that some people might like was censored because, oh, it worked cut in my direction. Well, what happens when it doesn't cut in your direction? When you can have Twitter and Facebook casually willy-nilly determine things that are and aren't allowed to be shared based on their own personal preferences. It's unacceptable, man. It's totally unacceptable. It's really easy to imagine a situation where, you know, Bernie Sanders made it to the general election and there was something uh, that they banned that would have hurt his opponent or something that would have helped him that was banned. You know, I mean, I shouldn't even have to go to these sorts of um, scenarios in order to prove the case, because on principle alone, you should say, why is Twitter and Facebook censoring anything solely based on politics? Like, imagine they were around at the time when, well, I think Facebook was. Maybe Twitter was too, I don't know. But let's just say they banned sharing uh, the Snowden revelations which showed that the U.S. government was spying on all Americans, illegally and unconstitutionally. They were taking all of our metadata. What if the claim from the CIA and the NSA and the FBI and the deep state was, oh, this is Russian disinformation? Would Twitter and Facebook just be like, okay, axe it. Don't allow anybody to share these stories. They may have done that. They may have done that. Now, would you be okay with it in that scenario? Would you be okay with it if they called it Russian disinformation, the Chelsea Manning leaks, when she... uh, showed Julian Assange how our military was assassinating civilians and then laughing about it. What if they banned that video and said, this is helping Russia, it's Russian disinformation? Would everybody be okay with that? Because that's what they want to do. They want to censor stories like that. So it shouldn't matter what direction it cuts in politically. If the things that are being discussed are factual and they're newsworthy, that's where it ends. I don't want Twitter or Facebook to be an editor or be a filter for me. I'll make my own, my own mind up as to what I think is legit and what I don't think is legit, but it should all be allowed. Now, by the way, Twitter, Jack eventually apologized when they banned the New York Post article that had all that, the emails in there. Now we know, we know for sure the emails were hunters. It's been verified. They said, no, 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 it's Russian disinformation or something. Well, so Jack apologized, and um, Facebook still hasn't. So, I mean, it's just astonishing. They really interfered in the election to protect Biden, and falsely claimed it's Russian disinformation. I mean, everybody should be uncomfortable with the social media outlets being that involved in politics. You need to go back to what your original idea was. We're just a medium. We're just a bathroom wall. We're not in the business of nitpicking and, and filtering and editing and determining what is and isn't acceptable. We're just the medium. That's like if, imagine a phone company determined, I'm just going to censor certain words when you say them. You'd be like, what are you talking about? They say, well, it's our platform. We determine we don't like it when you say this word. 
We're just going to censor it every time you say it. You'd be like, get the fuck out of here. You're just the medium. I'm not asking you to do anything. You just exist as a medium for me to call my friend. That's how people have to start thinking about this because this is unacceptable. And again, now we know for sure the emails were hunters. And so the corruption stuff was real. The corruption stuff was true. That's the stuff that matters. You know, um, and just for, to the right-wingers, God, for, don't get fucking bogged down in the salacious addiction stuff and sex stuff because that makes people more sympathetic to Hunter, you know, rightfully so. So they say, how is this newsworthy? I don't care what Hunter is doing with his dick. I don't care what drugs he's doing today. Now, there is a hypocrisy angle with Joe Biden. He was a drug warrior, so his son should be locked up according to his own ideology. You could point out that hypocrisy, but you don't, don't show the pictures of Hunter engaged in all, all these sorts of things because there is no news value in that. There's none. It's just a, you know, ha-ha-hee-hee hee, point and mock effect, which is not newsworthy. What is newsworthy is corrupt deals with the Ukrainian energy company, corrupt access to Joe Biden, pay-to-play stuff, uh, you know, a deal with a Chinese company, apparently. So this is a bad precedent that's been set, and I shudder at the thought of what happens moving forward. All right, next. Tucker Carlson can't help himself, y'all. He um, he keeps, you know, going down this anti-vaccine path. 90% of Fox News employees are vaccinated. And of the 10% that are not, they take daily tests. They have much stricter vaccine standards than, uh, than the Biden administration. So he's hiding the fact he's almost certainly vaccinated and uh, kind of hiding that fact from his audience and going hard on anti-vaccine stuff. Well, now he has a doozy of a claim about what's going on with vaccine mandates in the military. The point of mandatory vaccination is to identify the sincere Christians in the ranks, the free thinkers, the men with high testosterone levels, and anyone else who does not love Joe Biden and make them leave immediately. It's a takeover of the U.S. military. What? What? So the claim is Biden wants a bunch of pro-Biden soy boys in the military? How does that even make sense? Wouldn't, in Tucker's fantasy land, wouldn't it work the other way that, you know, you'd want the Trump people to be in the military because then they could be cannon fodder? Like, okay, you guys go do the dirty work for us soft liberals. Wouldn't that be the way it works? No, he's saying the men with high testosterone are being purged from the military. Is that also like a wink and a nod to like these silly leftists with their trans issues and their 87 pronouns, they want a bunch of asexual LGBTQIA LMNOP weirdos in the military. Ha ha, stupid. I don't know. Maybe that's a wink and a nod to that, but what a ridiculous claim. As if the government is actually trying to purge the military of Christians? Like 70 or 80% of this country is Christian. If you purge the military of Christians, you're going to have a hard time. Your military got more than cut in half. Obviously, they're not trying to do that. I also love how he puts Christian and free thinker together. Free thinker is usually used in the context of saying free from dogma. Like you don't have dogmatic beliefs. Christianity, by definition, it's its own dogma. It, it's its own set of beliefs. It's a religion. So he links those together as if, like, well, Christianity... Well, the free thinkers are the same as the Christians. What? And, and he's also hinting that 
free thinker means you don't want to take the vaccine. What if that just means you haven't evaluated the evidence properly? And I'm being kind by putting it just like that. When you have over 90% of the people who are dying and are hospitalized from COVID now are unvaccinated, what if you just haven't looked at the numbers and digested them properly? What about that? What about that? No, it must be you're a free thinker. Yeah, free to be dead wrong. Now, by the way, I will say this. I don't know the way it works for the military. I don't know if it's um, if they have a policy of you must get vaccinated or test. But I will say this. If it is solely a vaccine mandate, I would oppose that because you can just test instead. I like what Biden did with businesses where it's 100 employees or more. You have to get vaccinated or test weekly. I like that. I like giving people that little out. I like the default being get vaccinated, but if you're really committed against it, you can take a test. I like that. So if, if it's a pure vaccine mandate in the sense that they don't offer tests as an out, then I would be against it. I don't know what it is in the military, though. Maybe they do have the testing. Maybe they don't. But if they don't have the testing, I would be against it. But anyway, I mean, what a ridiculous I mean, this victim complex, people on the right. What is wrong with you? It can't just be that this is a public health safety measure that actually would help you. Can't be that. It's got to be nefarious partisan tribal politics and Biden is trying to purge the military of Christians, which would mean our military is more than cut in half. He's trying to purge it of free thinkers. He's trying to purge it of manly men. And by the way, I love the, the idea that Christians, free thinkers, and manly men are anti-Biden. Of course, they're all anti-Biden. Plenty of Christians are pro-Joe Biden. Plenty of them. You know, his approval rating usually hovers between 42% and 52%. So that's plenty of Christians in there like Joe Biden. Plenty of free thinkers like Joe Biden. Plenty of manly men like Joe Biden. Again, it's lazy tropes and stereotypes. Like The manly men are all macho and love Trump and are wrong about vaccine efficacy. Oh, the manly men are dumb. Actually, no, Tucker, that's not true. Jesus Christ. It really is astonishing. I I am amazed at how much he's leaning into this. And by the way, this has become a big culture war issue these days. It has. And that's depressing. That it's a culture war thing now. Because, by the way, this was one of Trump's biggest accomplishments was basically rushing that vaccine. And now it's got full FDA approval. I mean, they should be doing a victory lap over this. But no, it's become this weird culture war thing. Now, there are plenty of people on on the left who are anti-vax, but it's more on the right. And um, it's a shame. I really think the policy of either get the vaccine or just get tested, that's a good policy. I like it. And honestly, I'd like to see it implemented Everywhere. I think we'd be in much better shape if that was the case. So, uh, had a, have a bit of a bombshell here that wasn't really talked about much. Let me show you. This is from Mediaite. Internal memo reveals Trump campaign new election fraud claims were false all along. So in other words, they knew they were lying all along. So let me just give you some of this. Former President Donald Trump's campaign was aware that some of its claims about fraud in the 2020 election were false, 
according to an internal memo that was just made public. The New York Times reported that the memo was released Monday night as part of a defamation lawsuit against the Trump campaign from Eric Cooper, a former, excuse me, a former employee of Dominion Voting Systems. The company has been the subject of a torrent of conspiracy theories and false claims regarding the 2020 election. Cooper, as well as Dominion and another voting systems company called Smartmatic, have all launched defamation lawsuits against proponents of those claims. According to the Times report, the Trump campaign crafted an internal memo acknowledging that its legal team's allegations against the Dominion and Smartmatic were false. The document was put together before the, inf- before the infamous November 19th press conference in which Trump lawyers Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis pushed a series of insane conspiracy theories about the election, suggesting the campaign sat on its findings. From the Times, get this. Even though the memo was hastily assembled, it rebutted a series of allegations that Ms. Powell and others were making in public. It found that Dominion did not use voting technology from the software company Smartmatic in the 2020 election, that Dominion had no direct ties to Venezuela or to Mr. Soros, and that there was no evidence that Dominion's leadership had connections to left-wing Antifa activists, as Ms. Powell and others had claimed. It's currently unknown if Trump ever saw the memo, though the former president continues to falsely claim that he won the election, a claim that fueled the violent riot by his supporters at the U.S. Capitol. Okay, so um, the reason why this is so such a bombshell, and it is that, is because there's, they knew all along they were lying. If your own campaign drafts a memo that rebuts all the conspiracy theories, and then your campaign goes out there and promotes those same conspiracy theories that you just debunked, Somebody's lying. Somebody's lying. And the question is, who knew, who didn't know, how involved was Trump, and what's really going on in his mind? So now, I mean, he's ramped it up ever since he left office. Every time he gives some sort of public speech, he leans into those conspiracy theories and at the very least implies them, if not outright promotes them. And so there was reporting from Jonathan Swan of Axios behind the scenes that at the last minute, Trump sort of sided with the people who were saying, we lost the election. So it seems like he knows he lost the election, but what is it? Some sort of emotional protection mechanism to go out there and pretend like he won it? Or is he just completely flat out lying every time he does it? He knows he's full of shit and he's doing it. But either way, without a doubt, there were dishonest actors from within the administration who knew it was false, but they were pushing it anyway. I mean, there was a split, but there were also some who were two-faced and were saying one thing behind the scenes and saying one thing publicly. And by the way, that's why some of these lawsuits have proceeded. It's super hard to get anybody on defamation in the U.S., but courts have already ruled that this, this lawsuit has merit and it can proceed, which means there's something there. This seems like some pretty damning evidence when you know what you're saying is false, but you keep saying it, and in the process it's ruining a reputation of a company. Now, by the way, understand something. I don't think we should have any private companies involved in elections. I think that that's a terrible thing. You want it to all be public infrastructure. You don't want anybody that has ulterior motives coming up with the machines or whatever. So I'm against private companies being involved at all. But having said that, the claims that they were making against these private companies were total bullshit. I mean, they literally were arguing that, like, Maduro was swinging the votes. What? Links to Antifa and Venezuela and George Soros and... 
They're like, that none of this is anywhere near true. So you can't just lie about them. Again, I don't like private companies being involved in elections, but just because they are doesn't mean you get to go out there and lie about them relentlessly. And by the way, I think the idea is they're, they can prove material damages because they're saying we're never going to be picked again to be used in elections because our reputation has been destroyed in ways that are totally and provably false and wrong. So that's why it might be one of the reasons why they have a case here. And also, I don't know, maybe there were other material damages, as in people associated with the companies who were threatened or, you know, harassed or whatever it may be. But they knew, man. They knew all along. They knew. There are some dogmatic, crazy people like Sidney Powell who may have been convinced of her own bullshit, but there's plenty of people who were part of the administration, knew these things were false, but still went out there and pushed it anyway. In other words, they are brazen liars. All right, final story of the day. Now, I, I want to be clear about this before I dive into the specifics of this story. I am not doing this in a mean-spirited way. I'm not doing this to point the finger and laugh at these people. Um, and I actually struggled with whether or not I should do this segment. Um, because I don't want it to come across the wrong way. I don't want people to think um, celebrating death or, or I'm saying they got what they deserved or whatever. No. The reason I'm, I'm going to show you these stories is because if we even change one person's mind who's anti-vaccine and then they decide, okay, or they're on the fence and then they say, you know what, okay, I'm going to get vaccinated after seeing this, then that's a victory. And I don't know. I have no idea if this will change anybody's mind. All I can tell you is the goal of me talking about this stuff is to give everybody the facts, give everybody the information, and show everybody the tragedy that's currently out there because of bad ideas and wrong ideas. Uh, so there's this website called sorryantivaxxer.com. Now, I will say the way that they discuss everything, sometimes they cross that line, in my opinion, and they're a little too tap dancing on grave-like you know, and I think that's gross. I don't like it. But what they do is, very clearly, they, um, people who die from COVID, they see what do these people believe. And there are many instances where people end up dying of COVID and they were very publicly anti-vaccine on social media. And so what they do is they tell their stories. So without further ado, let's get it started right Kristen Lowry, 40 years old, from Escalon, or is that where she works? I don't know. California, anti-vaxxer, ex-vaxxer, vaxxer, died of COVID. So let's see what's going on here. Hold on. According to this social media post, Kristen died from COVID September 15th, 2021. She leaves behind four school-age children. They say she was definitely anti-vax. I mean, that's a young woman right there, guys. How do we know she was anti-vaxxer? Well, there you go. This is one of the things she posts on her social media. Unmuzzled, unvaccinated, unafraid, together we will win. Unmasked, so not just against vaccines, against masks. Give a voice to the vaccine injured. Ex-vaxxer, it says on her shirt. Free thinker. 
question everything, research mandatory. So they like to call themselves free thinkers. Ah, I fucked up. Hold on. Oh, did I fuck this up? I think I fucked this up. My bad, guys. Let me... I have to start over from her story because there's a technical glitch with the camera, but don't worry, we'll get it. We'll get it sorted. Here we go. Hold on. Kristen Lowry, 40 years old, Escalon, California, anti-vaxxer, quote, ex-vaxxer, died of COVID. According to the social media post, Kristen died from COVID September 15, 2021. She leaves behind four school-age children. She was definitely anti-vax. That's a young woman right there. Um, how do we know she was anti-vaxxer? Well, there you go. Unmuzzled, unvaccinated, unafraid, together we win, unmasked, unmuzzled. Um, I'll give you some more. Give a voice to the vaccine injured, ex-vaxxer, free thinker, research mandatory, question everything. I am vaccine educated. And here you go. My beautiful niece has lost her battle against COVID. My heart is breaking for her four kids and her sister, Cassie, and brother Kurt. We will miss her always. So many people need, need her here, but God must have special plans for her in heaven. You are so loved, Kristen, and will be so, so missed. Rest, rest in peace, Kristen. Update, sorry, anti-vaxxer reader and commenter. Ren Paddington had an exchange with Joel Renfro on Facebook, who claims to be Kristen's brother, but appears to be the father of the two youngest daughters of Kristen Lowry. The following is the exchange. I'm afraid there really is no getting through to these people. Um, Joel, are you vaccinated yet or still rooting for your immune system to keep you safe? I have an immune system. Does it matter? Is it any of your business what my personal beliefs are in this free country? But FYI, I had COVID and survived. Okay, so we don't need to go into any more specifics of this one. I'll give you some more. Um, Brittany Bradford, 33 years old, Memphis, Tennessee. Pure romance rep, anti-vax, dead from COVID, boyfriend dead too. 33 years old, really young. Um, According to social media posts below, Brittany died of covid on September 20th, 2021, just 48 hours after her boyfriend, Joshua Turner, died. His Sorry Anti-Vaxxer entry is here. Fun fact, Brittany is the second pure romance rep to be featured on Sorry Anti-Vaxxer. I don't know why they say fun fact. See what I mean about the tone of this website? It's not great. Um, so as we saw in the previous entry, Joshua was for sure an anti-vaxxer. How about Brittany? Yep, she had her own set of memes to express her vaccine feelings. So we do have some decent Memphis people, and I'm not talking about the ones who seize the cards. The fake anti-vaxxer cards that she was a part of. She shared a, uh, a story about how a fully vaccinated flight attendant died of COVID, one of very, very few who does. It's very likely to save your life if you get the vaccine. Very rare that double-vaxxed people die. You usually have to be immunocompromised or super old for that to happen. Um, <clears throat> So we're treating this like HIV AIDS. Also, how are you going to prove this? New Mississippi public health order requires those with COVID to isolate or face jail time fines. She shared an anti-vax meme of a comically large vaccine needle being implemented in people and injected in people, and it says, coming soon. She says, 
she shared a meme, the Delta variant is the fool me twice part. Then we have, um, here's what happens next. Joshua passed away. He's with Jesus. Continue to pray for Brittany. She's not doing well. Please keep Diane and Brittany's mom in your prayers. Thank you for all the prayers. You will never know how much your prayers mean to me. You all have lifted me up. Then we get another update. Continue to pray for Brittany and mom. Marcia, Brittany is six days on the vent with no improvement. Then finally, update. Brittany passed away this morning. Thank you for so many prayers. Okay. So you get you get the point here. I don't want to belabor it. Um, I guess I could give you, I'll give you one more. David Crabtree, 53 years old, um, lived in Montana. He's the owner of a business, anti-vaccine, dead. According to this obituary, David died on September 10th, 2021. We know he died of COVID and we'll get a hint at why. David was not a prolific spreader of anti-vax memes. So why are we posting him here? Because the peculiar thing about David is that his daughter is a, a critical care nurse. By the time she talked her father into getting a vaccine, it was too late. So this guy wasn't even anti-vaccine. He was just, like, unsure, you know? Um, well, it looks like, no, he may have been anti-vaccine. Here's a post from him. Imagine if a scientist discovered a cure for terminal cancer. Would world governments offer it for free and coerce you with prizes, rewards, treats, and lotteries if you took it? Let that sink in. You have, um, you have a post here where she was trying to convince her dad to get the vaccine. She's talking about it. This is actually heartbreaking. Listen to this. I debated on whether or not I wanted to say anything. This is uh, his daughter. I had several people message me and say that my dad's story changed their mind, so I thought, why not? If it saves someone's life, it was worth, it was worth sharing. If you have your reasons for not getting the vaccine, great. This post isn't for you. But if you are on the fence and don't have any medical or personal reasons not to, you might want to read this. My dad was 53. He was active and healthy. His only comorbidity was newly diagnosed diabetes, which was being controlled with diet, exercise, and one pill. He was tough as nails, and he fought like hell, but it still wasn't enough. My dad didn't want the vaccine because he wanted to wait to see the long-term effects of it first. Perfectly reasonable, except he didn't live long enough to find out. After he was diagnosed with diabetes, we convinced him to go get his vaccine because after being at work for a few weeks, I saw for the first time how bad it actually was. Four days before he was supposed to get his shot, he started having body aches and chills. This quickly progressed to difficulty breathing. Fast forward two weeks in the ICU. His lungs were still deteriorating and he had to be intubated. Shortly after that, his heart stopped. After a couple rounds of CPR and lots of cardiac medications, he was immediately transferred to research downtown. Uh, when you're on the ventilator, the foreign object in your lungs puts you at a higher risk for infection. Over two to three weeks stay at the new ICU, my dad developed three different infections. One made it into his bloodstream. On his last morning, we got the call that he had no brain activity and that he was in organ failure. We called close family and friends to come say goodbye. The man laying in that bed was not my dad. COVID took everything that made him who he was. We turned off the life support less than 12 hours later, and we buried him four days later. I'm not sharing this for sympathy. I'm sharing this because my dad was a loved member of the community. This hits close to home for a lot of people. I know some people might say my dad was just one example of an unvaccinated person having a hard time with COVID. Want to come to work with me? For a couple hours, I'll show you a lot of work, a lot more, excuse me. Walk through research ICU, you'll see more there. How many examples do we need before we decide to do something about it? My dad thought it could never happen to him. He was healthy. He played baseball, football, and basketball with my brother almost daily. And if anyone knows my, mom, my mom's cooking, you know his diet was healthy too. This can happen to anyone. My dad rolled the dice. Please don't roll the dice. Get your vaccine. Wow, that's, that's uh, very depressing, very sad. Anyway. 
Sorryantivaxxer.com. Go check it out. It's people who were publicly anti-vaccine and then ended up dying of COVID. I hope that can change somebody's mind who's close to you who doesn't want to get the vaccine, guys. All right, we're done. All right, love you guys. I'll talk to everybody soon. Great Crystal Kyle and Friends this week with somebody who made an amazing documentary on the financial crisis. Um, Don't want to miss that. Check that out. Love all y'all. Love all y'all. Have a great rest of the week. Peace.